Down to you. Down to us. It's down to all of us, together. The generations alive today will determine the climate and humanity's future. This is Down to You Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Down to You Podcast. I'm Hollis. And I'm Alex. And we're coming at you today from the traditional unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Colonially known as Vancouver, British Columbia. And we're really excited to bring you this podcast that we've been working on, where we get to share some conversations that we've been having with some truly inspiring youth throughout this province. Exactly. Yeah, we've been journeying all across BC and talking to young people about the different positive actions they're taking to reduce their carbon footprint. Yeah, and it brought a lot of hope and energy to us to hear some of these really innovative ideas and great attitudes from these people. Mm, Great attitudes indeed. It's 2023 and climate crisis is on full steam ahead, it feels like. And with what's on the news, you know, we had a really rough We had a rough summer this year in Canada. Yeah, and it seems like we're right in the thick of it here in BC. We've been seeing some major fires, droughts, floods, some big heat waves, the whole works. No wonder a sense of dread and anxiety is present for many of us. We heard from many youth again and again that taking action and connecting to nature really helps them deal with these worries. We also heard from youth about the importance of community and lifting each other up and supporting each other. You know, I think about the young people in my life. I am with a child. I'm, I'm with a child. And I think about, like, her life. And, you know, it, if I don't see the action, if I just focus on the negative and the news and the kind of doom and gloom that's kind of projected out there, I would feel a lot worse. But this podcast and the conversations we've been having, it gives me hope. Yeah, it makes me feel empowered after listening to a lot of these young people, you know. And I'm excited to amplify that. Climate change conversations are often peppered with concepts and words that can seem ambiguous or unrelatable at times. Net zero seems to be everywhere these days, on the news, on the radio. But what does it mean and how does it relate to us? Here's what we heard when we asked you to tell us what net zero means to you and what you'd like to know about it. The word that describes net zero for me is multifaceted. Two words that describe net zero for me is less carbon effort and community. Uh, When I imagine a net zero world, I imagine that everybody is resourceful and really mindful of how they're using materials and different things. I imagine people letting go of their convenience. A world where things are equitable. Um, Just like a very well-designed kind of productive city is sort of what comes to mind with like nice big walkways for pedestrians, quiet electric vehicles, lots of green spaces. Um, Yeah, I would like to know more about how to help the world to achieve it. I would like to know how the government is involved, um, what actions they're taking, what steps they're taking to reach net zero. Are we going to achieve it sometime soon? (laughs) Uh, I'd like to know. We often think of it only in connection to governments and their plans and policies. But we are all agents of change, and small actions, no matter how insignificant they may seem, 
do add up to support much bigger changes that can result when governments enact good climate policies. To kind of frame this a little bit more into the bigger picture, we spoke to a couple of scientists. We spoke to Jenna Whale, an Indigenous climate scientist working with the Canadian Climate Institute. From speaking to Jana and discussing our own thoughts about it, we might think that climate crisis was brought by colonization as well as resource extraction, consumerism, and industrialization. These kinds of big structures and systems are impacting our climate in a really dangerous way. So it's important for us to bring on the Indigenous perspective and ways in which Indigenous people have lived in harmony with the land and how she's understanding the climate crisis. Welcome, Jana, to the Down to You podcast, and thank you for being here with us to answer some of our questions about the climate crisis. Thanks for inviting me. It's really cool. My name is Jana Will. I'm from Gitamax First Nation on my dad's side. I'm also Cree Métis on my mother's side. And as my day job, I currently work as a policy advisor at the Canadian Climate Institute in our brand new Indigenous Research and Partnership stream. Our institute actually runs an Indigenous Perspective case study, which seeks to kind of uplift and amplify Indigenous-led research across Canada. So First Nations peoples have been living on this land for eons and have been resilient to many climatic changes throughout pre-colonial history. From your experience, what are some ways in which Indigenous people take care of the environment? Um, I guess I should have prefaced that, like, these are my own opinions. They can't be representative of my community, my nation, or my place of work. This is just my opinion on, on these questions. Since we have such a deep connection to our lands and our territories, our cultures are often founded on being in relationship with the land and with the resources in a way that is both respectful as well as sustainable. So caring for the earth is literally embedded in many of our cultures. And many of our cultural practices were designed not only to reinforce sustainability, but also with caretakership and stewardship in mind as well. For example, my community uh, has ayok or laws, which speak to living sustainably in our cultural practices. When we harvest salmon, for example, we use the whole salmon. Whatever is not used is then returned to the river and in turn feeds the river. So even though our ancestors have been doing this for generations, Western science confirms that decomposing salmon actually helps to distribute rich marine nutrients, which strengthen the rest of the life around the river itself. There's also other practices like traditional burning, which really reinforce this aspect of not only being in relationship with, but also contributing to this relationship with the land in meaningful ways. So when we burn out an area, things actually grow back a lot better. Berry patches are revitalized and lead to more berries that can then be harvested in subsequent years. So given that prescribed or traditional burns often burn at lower temperatures, this will actually make the area more resilient to larger catastrophic fires, which can help to achieve overall climatic resilience as well. So there are many examples that I could really talk about, and these are just a few highlights of how we live, how we have lived, and how we will continue to live in relationship to our territories. So from your experience, what is a prevalent understanding of climate change and the root causes in Indigenous communities in BC? Yeah, for this one, I think it really depends who you're asking. So in my work, a common theme I hear from a lot of communities is that colonialism has really caused climate change. Essentially, since the arrival of settlers on our shores, resource management has shifted towards a more extraction-based relationship with our resources, often without Indigenous consultation or consent. Canada, by and large, is a country that is founded on extraction of our natural resources. These extraction activities have really led to a degradation of our territories that have really fueled the climate crisis. For example, in my territory, forestry is one of the main economic drivers in the region. 
While it provides some employment, it has also led to an increase in yearly flooding and slope instability, which are then beginning to impact our rivers. So in my experience, many communities want to see the way that we treat our resources change. Communities are really ready to lead the climate change fight and want to be involved in restructuring how we relate to our natural resources and how governments then create climate policy. So often the climate change terminology that gets used is from a more like Eurocentric scientific language. I'm wondering, is there a better way that we could go about discussing climate change and net zero that would be more relevant to Indigenous people in BC? Yeah, so I'm not a language speaker. I'm in the process of learning, but I'm by no means fluent. But from my understanding and in my master's thesis research, a lot of the conversations I had around things like resilience and sustainability really seem to speak to us as a whole, as a people, and our relationship with the landscape. So when we talked about being resilient, often there would be concepts of how Gitsan people and also how our practices are resilient. It's a little bit of a complicated answer, but yes, we have concepts for those. It's just hard to pin down into a single word. I think it's really more about knowledge, translation and accessibility rather than differences in concept. Indigenous people are and have always been scientists. We observe the patterns on the landscape and we use methods that are backed by understandings of the processes around us. So Indigenous knowledge is and needs to be recognized first and foremost as a form of science. But fundamentally, I don't think there's a big jump to be made in terms of language. Indigenous people were essentially net zero for centuries before contact. Net zero is just a really a different term for balance, balancing our carbon emissions. So I think the idea of balance is not new to Indigenous people, and it's something that is upheld by our cultures. Balance is a core tenet of being Gitsan, and it really underscores how we're able to interact with our environment. Yeah. What are some of the observable changes in climate that you're aware of? And in what way are they impacting Indigenous peoples in BC, their communities, and their cultural practices? Yeah, so climate change is really beginning to affect Indigenous communities during all parts of our seasonal round, um, which is really beginning to impact all aspects of our culture and our processes. For example, in our area, we're really seeing a dark decline in how many salmon are returning each year, which is impacting how we are able to practice our culture as Gitan people. So we are fishing people, and with less salmon returning every year, uh, we are less able to practice these key pieces of our culture, like harvesting and preserving methods, not to mention the traditional stories and teachings that relate to salmon as well. Another big one, as changes in climate are happening, the forage that moose rely on is changing in things like timing and availability, which is pushing the moose out of their home ranges where they're typically found. Our hunters are having to go further and further to find them, which is both time consuming as well as quite expensive. Some hunters are having a harder time finding moose at all in the past couple of years. So, you know, the list goes on. There are so many climate impacts happening across our territories that it's difficult to speak to only a couple, since the changes that are happening on the land often create cascading impacts where changes create more changes. And how do we enable people in British Columbia to connect to the land and water and stop seeing themselves as separate from it? especially thinking about folks that are coming here as settlers or newcomers and may not have the same connection to the land that Indigenous peoples traditionally have? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you're right. I think a lot of the problems that we really have today are, in my opinion, caused by a disconnection between people and place, which leads to really a loss of feeling of responsibility. So in order to reconnect and experience that sense of responsibility that leads to better and more thoughtful caretakership, it really involves going out on the land and spending more time there. 
Everyone knows that relationships typically take time and effort, and our relationship with the land really is no different. So the more time that you take to connect and experience the natural world, the more likely you'll feel responsible for how we treat it and responsible for making good decisions to maintain it for future generations. This can be a harder one, but I think the more we talk about it as a living entity, the more we can envision our place in that relationship and picture where we fit into the living community that we inhabit. So how can we better enable Indigenous-led climate solutions? And what can individuals do? I think enabling more Indigenous-led climate solutions really takes just that, which is allowing Indigenous people to lead and be more present at decision-making tables and seen as rights holders rather than just as consultations and approvals. Um, In a lot of legislation and policy coming out right now, we see that Indigenous peoples are being positioned as leaders uh, in the fight against climate change. But in order to actually see that come to pass, we need more Indigenous people at climate decision-making tables, in positions of power, in organizations and in governments, and treated as equal when we're looking for experts on these things. The more important thing is for individuals to get educated and to also create space. It's really everyone's job to further reconciliation and it's everyone's job to consciously consider biases that may be interfering with our ability to meet people where they're at. So as well, creating space for mentorship and capacity for Indigenous youth can also have a really big impact. I know it's really helped me in my journey and I'm always really thankful for those that uh, have created space for me and also aware of you know my place in this and creating space for those who come after me as well. Thank you, Jana, for being here on the Down to You podcast. We appreciate hearing about your perspectives and your experience in the climate change field. Speaking about Western science, there's also some terminology that we are interested in demystifying. To kind of uh, answer these questions, we caught up with Simon Donner, a climate scientist and professor from the University of British Columbia. Net zero is kind of a buzzword around the climate crisis conversations. And I didn't actually truly understand what it meant before. Mm -hmm. I I didn't take the time to stop and really think about what net zero meant. Right. But um, yeah, we spoke to Simon and he kind of breaks it down in a way that makes it really clear. Yeah. And I think just uh, connecting net zero even to what Jana talks about, she talks about in Gitsan, they have this idea of balance embedded into their cultural understanding. And that's even a way to understand net zero. As Simon will point out to us, there's no way for us to not have emissions. Like emissions are going to happen, but it's about balancing it out and offsetting those emissions. Net zero sounds like this big, heavy, complicated term, but really you can think of it as balance. Yeah. Yeah. We'd like to welcome Simon Donner, a climate scientist and professor at University of British Columbia, to demystify the term net zero as well as some other climate jargon. My name is Simon Donner. I'm a climate scientist and a professor at the University of British Columbia. And I'm also fortunate enough to serve on Canada's net zero advisory body, which is advising the Minister of Environment and Climate Change Canada on pathways to eliminating greenhouse gas emissions in Canada. World, through burning fossil fuels and land cover change, deforestation, or emitting greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And to stop the planet from warming, we have to stop adding those emissions to the atmosphere. Net zero means that the total of all the emissions minus things we do to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere totals up to zero. So it's like thinking of a bank account, considering both the deposits and the withdrawals and saying that we want them to equal zero. 
Carbon neutral is a term that was used a lot, I would say, over the past like 15 years, and we've shifted a lot to using the term net zero. The difference, I would say, between carbon neutral and net zero is technically carbon neutral sounds like it's only referring to carbon dioxide, whereas net zero is supposed to be referring to all greenhouse gases. There are a variety of different gases that all contribute to the greenhouse effect. Carbon dioxide is the main one that's increasing because of human activity, but we also have methane, nitrous oxide, et cetera. And so usually when we're talking about net zero emissions, we're talking about the sum of all of the different greenhouse gases that have been emitted by human activity. The problem is there are some categories of emissions that are really hard to eliminate. And so as a result, scientists use the concept of net zero emissions rather than zero emissions. So it's different from zero emissions because it's possible in a net zero world that we are still emitting some greenhouse gases through the burning of fossil fuels, through deforestation or through the activities that lead to methane and other gases getting into the atmosphere. But that we're countering that by withdrawing the equivalent amount out of the atmosphere through, through planting trees, through other natural climate solutions, and through technology that could pull CO2 right out of the atmosphere. So what are some of Canada's net zero goals and targets? Does each province have their own goals? So Canada passed legislation, the Net Zero Accountability Act, in which the federal government said that the ultimate goal for Canada is to get to net zero emissions by the year 2050. And Canada is one of many countries around the world to set that target. A number of provinces have done similar things, including Prince Edward Island, Quebec, British Columbia, etc. However, it's important to say there's a difference between having a target and having a plan to meet the target. And so although many provinces and the federal government have set the target, we don't have full plans about how we're going to achieve this. And that's really the hard part. Can you explain a bit about where these targets come from and why it's important for countries around the world to set these targets? The United Nations climate summits that have been going on since the 1990s. In Paris, they had a meeting, what they call a conference of the parties or a COP, of all of the people that are signatories to this agreement, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And Paris was set out a number of years ago as the meeting at which the world had to come up with some new global agreement in which every country was on board with trying to address climate change. The reason Paris became so significant is a few decisions that happened there. First decision was, what is the long-term goal for the world? And what was settled on was that the long-term goal was to avoid, ideally, two degrees of warming, and even better, one and a half degrees of warming. So if I understand it correctly, it was the Paris Agreement that put the wheels in motion for Canada and other countries around the globe to adopt these net zero targets. So what stage is Canada at with their plan? So much of our role on the net zero advisory body is trying to give the federal government advice on, okay, what is a pathway that can get us to net zero by 2050? And to be honest, this is an enormous challenge, whether for an individual province or for the country as a whole. And there might not be just one answer on how to get there. And so I would say there are very few places around the world that really know exactly how they're going to get there. Maybe we've figured out elements for certain industries. Like, I think it's pretty settled at this point that passenger vehicles are going to be largely electric going forward into the future. But exactly how we're going to power and fuel long-distance trans transportation, ferries, large trucks, airplanes, etc., is still really up for debate. What's the concept of science-based targets and net zero standards? Could you explain and elaborate on those concepts for us a bit? 
There are a lot of terms out there being used right now in the climate world. And one of them is this idea of having science-based targets. And usually what people mean by that is that, say, the Paris Climate Agreement has set a temperature threshold, saying we want to avoid passing one and a half degrees of warming, or we want to avoid passing two degrees of warming. And so a lot of people are saying that we need to base the targets, the emissions targets that individual countries have based on what's necessary to avoid that level of warming. It's quite complicated to do in practice because science can give us an idea of how much the world has left to emit, how much carbon the world could burn while still, while still having a good chance of it avoiding, say, two degrees of warming. That's still a range and an estimate. It's not a perfect number, but it can give us a range. And so it's a place to start with. But then to set a science-based target for an individual country or for a province or for a city or for a corporation, you need to decide how much of the world's carbon pie you get to eat. And there's no one, there's no agreement on how to allocate the resources in the world. And there's certainly no agreement on how to do this. And as a scientist, I'd like the idea of science-based targets. But in practice, it's actually much harder to do than people usually think. So how many degrees has the Earth warmed so far? Where are we sitting with that right now? So right now, the world has warmed by about 1.2 degrees since uh, the mid-1800s. And we are on path to pass 1.5 degrees of warming basically within 10 years. If you put together all of the promises from all of the countries around the world, warming could be limited to less than 2 degrees. I think the number right now is around 2.7 degrees. And perhaps even less than that, if you believe countries' net zero targets, if you take the net zero targets with no plans attached, but just the fact that the targets exist, we could avoid two degrees of warming. It's more like 1.9. But again, there's a big difference between having a target and having a plan to get there. And so we, we, uh, a lot of work needs to be done still. Thanks for joining us on the Down to You podcast, Simon. It was really great to meet you and take care. It's kind of a global problem that's becoming more and more real every day. And although we look to the youth as the future, it affects us all. But uh, problems require solutions. Mm. And the youth we spoke with are coming up with solutions and they're working together and they're trying to stay positive about it and they're educating others Mm. and collaborating across generations. Mm -hmm. And um, it gives us hope here at Down To You. Yeah, 100%. Taking what we learned from both Jana and Simon and what we learned from all the youth that we speak to across BC, we can see that there's still a lot of work to be done. And that's part of why we're offering this podcast, to plant seeds, amplify the work that's already being done, and hopefully produce a ripple effect out for other folks to take action in their communities. And we're really excited to share those stories with you. We hope you gather some hope from it, maybe get some new ideas from it, maybe share it with others, and enjoy the listen. Buckle up, peeps. Let's go. (laughs) Woo! The Down to You podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful production team and funders. From the Fraser Basin Council Youth Program, we have Sonia Dodig, Hollis Nelson, Nicole Gonzalez-Filos, and Lindsay Sackett. Also, a big thanks to our collaborators, Vedluna Studio, Pendimental Sound Production, ZG Stories, and Maya Lazar-Mulabdic for her beautiful illustrations. This project was undertaken with the financial support of the Government of Canada 
through the Federal Department of Environment and Climate Change. Thank you everyone for listening.